Hello and welcome back to the Fall of the Roman Empire. My name is Nick Holmes and this is episode 40 called Theodosius the Not-So-Great. And in this episode, we'll cover the rest of Theodosius's reign and whether his epithet of the Great really is appropriate. So you'll remember in the last episode, we talked about the decade after the disastrous Battle of Adrianople in 378, in particular the peace treaty which Theodosius negotiated with the Goths in 382. This was the first time that a foreign power had secured territory from the Romans, and it was an acknowledgement essentially that the Goths had won the war. We also talked about the civil war with Maximus, which ended in 388, with the battles of Siscia and Potovio, when Theodosius defeated and killed the usurper. And we also covered the rise of Ambrose, the Bishop of Milan, who rose to prominence as a persecutor of the Arians, even preventing the child emperor Valentinian II and his mother Justina, who were Arians, from worshipping in Milan. And then we heard about Ambrose's next victory when he made the Emperor Theodosius do penance for the massacre in the Hippodrome of Thessalonica in 390. So the power of the Christian church was clearly on the rise. Now, in this episode, we'll move on to the second civil war in Theodosius's reign, this time with another Western usurper called Arbogast, before we consider why Theodosius was called the Great, and whether he really deserved that title. So, let's return to Theodosius in the year 391, when, after his victory over Maximus in 388, he'd spent three years in Milan, making the Western Empire his main focus. Now, in that year, he decided to return to Constantinople and rule the empire from what was now its real capital. And in the West, he had two loyal, or at least he thought they were loyal, supporters. One was the young Valentinian II, who was now 20 years old, and the other was the man who he'd entrusted with military command in the West, a general of Frankish origin called Flavius Arbogastes, who we'll call Arbogast. Arbogast's titular position was Magister Militum in Praesenti, which literally meant commander of the armies attending the emperor. But, unlike in the East, where there were several generals at the Magister level, he had absolute command over all the Western armies, except for those in Africa. So he was basically the de facto ruler of the West. And his loyalty to Theodosius was beyond reproach. He'd fought for Theodosius in his Gothic campaigns and against Maximus, and had even personally undertaken a mission to kill Maximus's son Victor. So, you would think that everything was set for excellent cooperation between him and Theodosius, a bit like Diocletian had relied on his trusted general Maximian to rule the West. Wrong. This situation developed into one of the worst civil wars ever to hit the Roman Empire. And the reason was really the unsatisfactory position of the young Valentinian II. For Valentinian was becoming restless. Now 20 years old, he was no longer the child emperor, but everyone still treated him as exactly that. By the way, his forceful mother Justina had died in 388, so she couldn't do anything to help him anymore. 
Compared with him, Arbogast could not have been more different. He was a tough, experienced soldier who was actually running the Western Empire. It's difficult to see how a rupture between the two of them could have been avoided, for Valentinian understandably wanted to wield power, but Arbogast was not his appointment and not his supporter. Ultimately, Theodosius must be blamed for the falling out between the two of them since he created a situation that was unmanageable. In 391, Valentinian tried to remove Arbogast by summoning him to his residence in Vienne in Gaul, which Theodosius had pretty much exiled him to. From his throne, Valentinian handed Arbogast a letter containing his own dismissal. Arbogast laughed this off, saying that he took orders from Theodosius, not Valentinian, which was of course true. What happened next is one of the strangest incidents in late Roman history, for Valentinian was found on the 15th of May 392, hanged in his own quarters. Arbogast protested that he'd had no hand in it, although Zosimus says he organised his death and may even have carried it out himself. The official verdict was suicide, but, whatever the truth, the finger of suspicion pointed at Arbogast. Although Theodosius was married to Galla, Valentinian's sister, who apparently was outraged by her brother's death and blamed Arbogast, it seems strange that Theodosius didn't try to avert another civil war by coming to some sort of agreement with Arbogast, who still regarded him as his senior. Certainly, Arbogast had no pretensions for the purple himself, since he accepted that his Frankish blood ruled this out. But Theodosius prevaricated for months, neither accepting Arbogast nor condemning him. He may have been under the influence of his courtier Rufinus, who we're going to hear a lot more about over the next few years, because from 392 he secured Theodosius's favour as Praetorian Prefect of the East and dominated his court in Constantinople, having secured the exile or execution of his main rivals. All our sources are unanimous in describing him as cruel, avaricious, domineering and voracious for personal power. In other words, a thoroughly nasty bit of work. If Theodosius had been a wiser and better emperor, he might have judged that coming to terms with Arbogast was in his best interests. For although Arbogast had alienated and possibly killed Valentinian, he was actually quite well disposed towards Theodosius. But by ignoring him, Theodosius put him in an impossible position. For since Arbogast didn't have the presumption to take the purple himself, he found it difficult to govern the Western Empire from a simple practical standpoint. For example, legally, he could not issue instructions and edicts without being the emperor, which Valentinian had been doing until they fell out. So Theodosius's silence forced Arbogast to find his own emperor. And this was someone called Eugenius, who had been Valentinian's chief secretary. According to Zosimus, he was not power-hungry like Rufinus in the east and only reluctantly accepted the position. Arbogast probably chose him because he didn't see him as a threat to Theodosius. He was also a moderate Christian, while Arbogast was a pagan, something which should help his cause with Theodosius. We know that Eugenius sent two embassies 
to Theodosius seeking friendship. He minted coins with himself and Theodosius as the two consuls in the West. By the way, this tradition of having two consuls, one or both of whom were emperors, was in itself meaningless but still symbolic and had survived from Augustus's time as a nod to the Republic. Even Ambrose, who was still in Milan, supported a compromise with Eugenius, but Theodosius was having none of it. In January, he raised his young son Honorius to the full rank of Augustus, thereby implying that he was the emperor of the West, not Eugenius. War was now inevitable. In April 393, Eugenius and Arbogast's troops moved into Italy unopposed and occupied Milan, which Ambrose left to go to Bologna. This move is widely seen as the last reassertion of paganism. Arbogast was a pagan, and most of the Senate in Rome were still pagans. They asked for the restoration of their cherished altar of victory. This was one of the main symbols of the classical pagan Roman Empire, a gold statue of the goddess Nike or Victory. It was originally captured over 600 years previously in the war against the Greek king Pyrrhus when the Roman Republic was quite young. It was Octavian who gave it special significance by placing it in the Senate House to commemorate the Battle of Actium, which marked the effective birth of the Roman Empire. Ever since, it had been central to Roman tradition, with senators burning incense and offering prayers for the empire's welfare on a daily basis. But it had been removed by Constantius II in 357, only to be reinstated by Julian, and then removed again by Gratian in 382. Eugenius's restoration of it sparked a pagan revival in Italy. Eugenius appointed a pagan praetorian prefect of Italy called Flavianus, who encouraged temples to be restored and pagan festivals and sacrifices to be celebrated. Ambrose wrote to Eugenius in protest, quote, Even if imperial power is great, consider how great is God. Was it not your duty, Augustus, to refuse what was so injurious to holy law? End quote. In early 394, both sides prepared for war. Arbogast controlled the West, including Italy, but not North Africa, where Gildo, Theodosius's loyal appointee, could have stopped the grain shipment to Rome, but Theodosius decided against this, perhaps in the hope of persuading the Roman populace to come over to his side. Both sides mustered their forces. What was striking about Theodosius's army was the very high proportion of barbarian mercenaries, especially the Goths settled by the Treaty of 382 in Roman territory south of the Danube. These Goths are referred to as Visigoths from this time, as they were called this by a 6th century Roman historian Cassiodorus, and from Theodosius's reign, they are normally referred to as such by historians to distinguish them from the other more numerous Gothic tribes that were mainly to the west of them in Central Europe, who have been called the Ostrogoths. In addition, Theodosius hired Alans and Huns. Many of the main generals were also of barbarian descent, including Stilicho, who makes his first appearance in a senior military role at this time, and is a man who we'll be hearing a lot more about in future episodes. 
against Theodosius, Arbogast gathered what was probably a more Roman army, with a higher proportion of legionaries, including the Gallic legions, which were probably the best units in the Roman army at this time, just as they had been in Constantine's and Julian's armies. But he also recruited a fair number of barbarian mercenaries, mainly Franks and Alemanni. Now you may well be thinking, hang on, so are the barbarian mercenaries now as important in the Roman army as the legionaries? Well, although no one is 100% certain of the exact numbers, I think you'd be right. And this is hugely significant in my view and something I will come back to a bit later on. Another striking feature of this conflict was its religious significance. Christian chroniclers have gone to great lengths to emphasise that it was Christianity's greatest test yet and that Arbogast and Eugenius's army was a pagan one, while Theodosius's was Christian. While they've probably exaggerated this to some extent, nevertheless, it was certainly true that the Roman Senate, championed by the Praetorian prefect of Italy, Flavianus, saw this as an opportunity to reassert paganism, if not to actually destroy Christianity. Flavianus apparently boasted that when Arbogast defeated Theodosius, he would force Italian monks to join the army and turn the holy churches into stables. The two armies met in Illyria, in the area that is now modern Slovenia, in a strategically important pass that linked northern Italy with the Balkans by the river Frigidus. Arbogast's army was blocking the pass, and on the 5th of September 394, Theodosius launched a frontal attack on the Western Roman army led by his Visigothic mercenaries. There was a bitter fight, with heavy casualties on both sides, but the Western legionaries with their Germanic mercenaries broke Theodosius's attack, and his troops retreated back, apparently leaving 10,000 Gothic dead on the battlefield. In the Western Army's camp, there was jubilation. Eugenius, in particular, thought that victory was his. Then Arbogast made a fatal mistake. He sent a significant number of troops in an outflanking manoeuvre to occupy the passes behind Theodosius, with the intention of encircling the Eastern Army and destroying it. It was a superb tactical move and should have brought him complete victory over Theodosius. But history moves in unpredictable ways and the commander of the detachment of troops that he sent turned out to be a traitor who negotiated with Theodosius to switch sides and join him for a huge sum of money. We know nothing about the individual concerned, but his actions literally changed the course of history. For the next day, Theodosius felt strong enough to launch another assault. However, this second attack was also beginning to falter when another unexpected event happened. This was a natural phenomenon in the form of a cyclonic wind known locally as the Bora. The cold air in this region coming from the mountains can produce an unusual atmospheric pressure which creates a temporary cyclonic wind of over 60 miles an hour. This was exactly what happened during the second day of the battle. But Arbogast's army was desperately unlucky because the full force of this wind blew against their battle line. It pressed against their shields, 
blinded them with dust, deflected their missiles back against them, and gave their opponents an irresistible tailwind to hurl themselves forward. You won't be surprised to hear that the Christian chroniclers saw this as an example of divine intervention. The result was that Abagar's army eventually broke and scattered. Theodosius's soldiers stormed his camp and captured Eugenius alive. He pleaded for mercy but was promptly beheaded and his head impaled on a spear and paraded before the prisoners of the Western army. As for Arbogast, he escaped the mountains, but after a few days he decided his position was hopeless and committed suicide. Theodosius was now the sole emperor of the entire Roman Empire, and he was the last man to hold that position. But he didn't hold it for long, for less than five months later he was dead. He died on the 17th of January, 395, aged 48, and had ruled for 16 years. He died from dropsy, which he'd had for many years and was probably linked to a weak heart or overindulgence in eating and drinking. Nevertheless, although his health had always been poor, his death was totally unexpected and left the empire in the hands of his two sons, Arcadius ruling in the east and Honorius in the west. This had always been Theodosius's carefully nurtured plan. He regarded his own dynasty as the only legitimate one, as shown by his fierce opposition to usurpers like Maximus and Arbogast and Eugenius. But there was one problem. Arcadius was 17 and Honorius was only 11. They were both too young to rule, and in both cases they would also prove to be fairly poor rulers, but that's for future episodes. On his deathbed, Theodosius tried to appoint regents to govern for his two young sons, the main ones being the general Stilicho in the west and the Praetorian prefect Rufinus in the east. But as we shall see in the next episode, he left a fairly shambolic conflict between these and others. But before we move on to the epic story of the fall of the Western Roman Empire that followed Theodosius's death in the next episode, let's pause and ask the question, why do people sometimes refer to Theodosius as the Great? Well, the answer, I think, is that the only people who did this were the Christian bishops, and in particular, the bishop Theodoret of Cyrus, who, if you remember in the last episode, is our main source for the story of Theodosius submitting to the will of Ambrose the Bishop of Milan. And not only did he actually live decades after the events that he wrote about, but some historians doubt his accuracy, and some even think he made them up. I think we can say that calling Theodosius the Great is largely due to Theodorus and other Christian chroniclers who saw Theodosius as a champion of Christianity over paganism, in a way very similar to their view of Constantine I, who was also, of course, given the epithet the Great by Christian writers. Now, that's a perfectly good reason for one point beyond dispute, I think, is that Theodosius was a committed Christian and believer in the Nicene Creed, so also anti-Arian. We know this because he enacted pro-Catholic legislation early on in his reign, in 380, with the Edict of Thessalonica, which essentially attempted to stop Arians from attending churches in Constantinople, although in fact not elsewhere in the empire. In practice, it was a bit like Ambrose's ban on Arians in Milan. 
So why was Theodosius so positive about Christianity? Well, the main reason seems to be his recovery from a severe illness in the year 380, which encouraged him to be baptised, so presumably he regarded his survival as due to divine favour. Perhaps a little bit like Constantine the Great may have regarded the Christian God as his benefactor, as we discussed in episode 24. We also know that he was anti-pagan. Historians take different views on this, and some argue that he didn't want to destroy paganism, but it seems to me that he came pretty close to it, because in the last years of his reign, he enacted a series of decrees called the Theodosian Code, which covered a wide range of legal matters, including religious ones, such as one edict issued in 392, which fairly clearly states, as far as I can see, that Christianity was the favoured religion, and that paganism was all but banned. So I can fully understand why the Catholic Church regards him as great. But what else was great about him? Not much, in my view. Indeed, there is one area where I think his reign was a disaster, and this lay with the decline of the Roman army. To start with, unlike Aurelian and Diocletian, who rebuilt the Roman army during the crisis of the 3rd century, Theodosius failed to rebuild it effectively after the catastrophe at Adrianople. This is clearly shown by his inability to defeat Fritigan's Tervingai and avenge Adrianople. For example, there was nothing like the reinvention of the cavalry arm which saved Rome in the 3rd century, as we discussed in episode 15. Instead, virtually all the elite regiments of the Eastern Army that had been destroyed at Adrianople were never truly rebuilt, meaning that the Eastern Army became second-rate. To compensate for this, Theodosius used the Goths as mercenary troops. This worked well for him in the short term, but in the longer term, I think it was disastrous since the Goths and other barbarians effectively replaced Roman soldiers as the elite regiments in the Roman army. Then on top of that, just as Theodosius failed to restore the Eastern army, so he nearly destroyed the Western one. At the beginning of his reign, this was still a premier fighting force, just as it had been under Julian when it won the Battle of Strasbourg in 357. But Theodosius's two civil wars greatly undermined it. In particular, at the Battle of the Frigidus River, it suffered huge casualties, which left it as a shell of its former self. In summary, when Theodosius died in 395, the Roman army had been drastically weakened and was now dangerously reliant on barbarian mercenaries to support it and to provide its elite troops. I think this was perhaps the major cause of the fall of the Roman Empire and the reason why, only 15 years later, the city of Rome itself was sacked by the Goths. And that ends this episode. Thanks so much for listening and I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, of course, I'd be delighted for any ratings or reviews in whichever podcast app you use. And next week, we'll continue with the rapid decline of the Roman Empire after Theodosius' death. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Mm -hmm.